Today's scripture comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, chapter 7, verse 10, to chapter 8, verse 10. Let's read together. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shoal or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to, to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and then honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver would become briars and thorns. With bows, bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write it on, write, write on it a common, char common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hajbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberekiah, and attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hajbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory and it will rise over all its channels and go over its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. 
Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. join together in worship. Uh, before we go into the message this morning, I want to introduce a few guests who are joining us. Uh, and and uh, if, if I call your name, if you could just simply wave your hand so we know where you are, that we can welcome you properly. Uh, we have our friends Caleb and Jay. Where are you? In the, they're on, to my right in the back. They came with their friend Elaine, who's, who's joined us a few times. Uh, let's welcome them together. Thank you for joining us today. And also, we have uh, David Kim joining us today. David, could I just quickly see your hand if you're, if you're here? There you are. Thanks for joining us. And, and if you, if you want to receive updates from us, uh, we invite you to fill out a, a newcomer's card just so that you can uh, be in the know what's going on in our ministry and um, be part of our uh, listserv. Well, we are uh, in, in our, this morning, we are in the text of Isaiah. Uh, thank you, Tim, for, for tackling those uh, challenging Old Testament names. And uh, as, I, as I tell our youth group students when it's their opportunity to read such passages, um, if you don't know how to say it, be confident in saying it. Because if you say it with confidence, people are going to think you're right and they may have missed something. Uh, and that's just a trick to reading a lot of these names in the Old Testament. Just sound very confident, and, and people will think you know what you're saying. Uh, but it's also fun just hearing a lot of uh, these Old Testament names come about because they're so foreign, but very important, especially in relation to prophecy. The book of Isaiah, uh, it's, it's written by a prophet named Isaiah, who is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and this is when the nation of Israel has split into two with the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And he's been prophesying during the reign of four different Judean kings. He lived during the time when the Assyrian Empire uh, exiled the northern kingdom of Israel. And he, would, he also prophesied how Babylon would deport Judah because of the, um, or, or will deport Judah and its entire kingdom, which happens about 100 years after he makes the prophecy. It's because of the rise and wickedness of Judah that God speaks through Isaiah, warning them of how they will be exiled if they do not repent and turn to the Lord. In the text context of our passage today, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel have allied together and they're invading the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. Uh, it's during the reign of Ahaz, and Ahaz had reasons to be afraid. There were reasons why he would be very hesitant and fearful about this invasion. Because Syria and Israel had already invaded Judea and, and, and won many battles where uh, Syria has killed over 120,000 Judean men of valor and Israel had taken 200,000 Judeans to captive. Edomites also had their share of victory over Judah, taking many captives, and the Philistines raided and took many villages away from the territory. It's after suffering through all these losses and with Syria and Israel preparing their siege against Jerusalem, that we hear God speaking to King Ahaz. So join with me in prayer as we go into the, the preaching of God's word this morning. 
Father, we thank you, Lord, that by your grace and mercy, you have gathered us here to hear your word. And we pray that you would open our minds and hearts to be able to comprehend and, and respond with obedience to the word which we're about to hear. Father, we pray that you would empower us to live lives that are pleasing to you. And the word of God will be delivered faithfully this morning so that you would receive the glory and for us to receive eyes of faith to behold our king and majesty. We thank you, Father, for your love and help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about two, three months ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, wearing a black sweater and black pants, much like Steve Jobs, without the turtleneck, uh, introduced his vision for the future called Meta and the Metaverse. Uh, in, in preparation for this sermon, just for this intro part, I, I watched about four or five different presentations about Metaverse, including a TED Talk by a guy who gave the entire presentation with the 3D goggles and a suit. It looked completely weird, uh, and, and he was trying to make a point, but I just couldn't help but be distracted. But Mark Zuckerberg was sharing that the technology that they want to introduce is ways off. But what he and the Meta team hope to do is to create what he called an embedded internet with just glasses and 3D headset. You'll be able to connect with other people in virtual lounges and virtual rooms. But the defining quality of the metaverse, according to Zuckerberg, is the feeling of presence. The feeling of presence. To really feel like you're in a room with other people where you, you don't have to be stuck with a computer screen seeing just square faces of individuals, but you can see people's facial expressions, their body languages, and all the subtle ways that human beings use to communicate. And you do this through an avatar, a, a 3D representation of yourself where you can show others as you want to be shown rather than show people as you actually are. Through this technology, the hopes of people at Meta is that you can really be with people without being with people. That's their, that's their goal, that you can be with people without actually being there for people. And I think to a generation that has lived in the internet and have not known life without it, this may sound like an appealing option. But we know that as human beings, to truly be with someone, you have to be physically present with that person. Sometimes just being with someone in, in the near vicinity, you, without even using any words, but simply to sit quietly next to that person can really make you feel like that person is present, that they are really there for you. I, I will never forget a particular brother of faith when, when he knew that I was going through deep heartache. He just simply invited me out to sit on the, on the stairs of a building late at night to have a drink together. To clarify, we were drinking root beer, uh, in case you needed to know. But no augmented or virtual reality could ever make an impact as much as having a friend there with you in person. But the presence of a person, as, as comforting as it can be for someone to just physically be there next to you, a presence of a person can also be terrifying, depending on who it is. Even without the use of any words, a mere individual can walk into a room that you are in, and all of a sudden, the entire room can feel very heavy. Maybe like a boss who is particularly disappointed with the employee's work, or a parent who is angry with the child, or the presence of a teacher when a student knows that he is caught cheating on a test. 
or the Israelites, the chosen people of God, when God makes an appearance through the roaring thunder and lightning, through an earth-shattering quakes, or, or, or through a pillar of fire and cloud, because they know that God is holy and they are lawbreakers. That the mere presence of such a being terrifies them. When Israel and Syria are at the gates of Jerusalem making preparations to attack the capital city, Ahaz and the people of Judah shook with great fear. The, the Bible tells us that they shook like trees in the forest as they shake before the wind. And what is the message that God has for Ahaz? Now keep in mind, this king of Judah is not a believer. Of, of the list of the kings of Judah, many of the Judean kings were characterized as they did right in the eyes of the Lord. They did right in the eyes of the Lord. And here comes Ahaz, and all of a sudden, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And yet, what was God's message to this unbelieving, evil king? He is a descendant of David. And God promised David that your lineage will continue. A son, your grandson, your, your bloodline will continue to occupy the throne of Judah. And so, even to this unbelieving, immoral king Ahaz, the message that God gives to him is, don't be afraid of the people who are invading you. Their plans will fail, so stand firm in faith. Even though Ahaz is not a believer of the God whom David worshipped, and he has shown himself to be immoral, one of the things that he did was he physically burned one of his children, one of his sons, as an offering to a God that he doesn't even know. And yet to this person, God says that he and the city of Jerusalem will be saved because of the promise that he made to his ancestor David, that his lineage will continue. And God was going to prove himself to be real and faithful. He was going to prove himself to say, I am this faithful God. Ahaz, you've been wicked before me. Will you turn to me by seeing how faithful and powerful I am? And so he offers this king an opportunity to ask for a sign, to prove that this God whom you have rejected will not reject you if you turn to him. That he is real and faithful to the very unfaithful and immoral Ahaz. However, Ahaz rejects the sign of God, and as a result, God gives him a sign of Emmanuel. The Hebrew word Emmanuel means God is with us. And the sign, uh, the, the prophecy and the sign goes to say that uh, a young man, a young woman uh, will give birth to a son. And even before the child can eat solid food, make moral choices, and have the ability to speak clearly, the very nations that are invading Judah will be carried away, proving that God is present, that God is with you, the God, that God is with Judah. The sign of Emmanuel is given by the following, and these three things will be the, the, the outline of the sermon this morning. Number one, we see the sign of Emmanuel in judgment. Number two, we see the sign of Emmanuel in hope. And number three, we see the sign of Emmanuel in the flesh. So in judgment, in hope, and in the flesh. So first, there is the sign of Emmanuel in judgment. God spoke through the prophet. He says, ask of anything as a sign, and I will be true to what I have said to you. Right? God offered this opportunity. If you want to see anything, anything whatsoever, just so that you know what I'm saying is real and what I promise will come true. Ask of anything as high as the heavens, as low as the shoal. Just ask of me. 
And Ahaz's response from the surface may sound very pious. He sounds like a godly person. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, the thing with reading texts is we, we don't quite know how Ahaz responded to this, but, but the way that I, I see it because of the interpretation, maybe it was, it was more of an expression of frustration and anger. Where I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. So it's not just, it, it, it sounds pious. It sounds like he's a godly man, but really it's, it's an expression of doubt and also an expression of rebellion. Ahaz is basically saying to Isaiah, I don't want this God to take credit for what is about to happen. I am so sure in my plan of, of, of saving my city and my territory that I don't want him to take those credits. I don't want people in my country to think that this God is who he says he is and for people to turn to him for help when I am their king. I will not ask this God of anything and have him take the credit for the victories. Ahaz had a plan. He devised it. He's putting it into effect. And it was to ask the great nation of Assyria to come and aid them. And so if Jerusalem is saved by this plan, Ahaz can say, it was me. It wasn't him. It was me. And though Ahaz rejected God, this sign of Emmanuel, God is really saying to Ahaz, I'm still with you. Regardless of your rejection of me, I am still with you. But this presence of God will result in embarrassment and cursing for Ahaz rather than a blessing. Assyrians, as Ahaz hoped, will come and aid Jerusalem. They will push the northern kingdom and Syria away and keep Jerusalem from their invasion. They will, in fact, demolish the entire northern kingdom and deport the entire kingdom into exile. But the very solution of Ahaz will be greater than the problem that he is facing with Syria and Israel. His solution will be worse than the problem. Instead of strengthening Jerusalem, Assyria will one day turn their backs and betray Jerusalem, and it will afflict it. Assyria will be an instrument of God's wrath, and they will swarm like flies and bees, and their forces will be like the rushing waters of the sea and leave the entire land of Judah barren. People are going to have so little in supply. They have some cows and, and sheep, but they can't afford to eat them because they're just so little, so they can only take the milk that comes out of it. The land will be a dangerous place for anyone who decides to tread upon it. Though the Assyrians are allies to them now, they will turn back and become one of Judah's greatest enemies. It is what you wished for, Ahaz, and I am with you. And I will enact my plan and my judgment for what you have decided to do. Sometimes, God in his judgment gives us what we desire. Sometimes God in his judgment gives us what we've been asking for and craving if that desire does not come from God. As Paul said to the Romans, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed. These people claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God sometimes gives us the very idols that we crave so that you and I can experience their betrayal and their burdens. God sometimes gives us the things that we have wished for in this world, the possessions, the material, the status, the wealth, so that you can see how much they will betray you and hurt you and destroy you in the end, that there is no salvation outside of God. One commentator said, when we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. When we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. Whereas John Wesley said, if a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. Friends, where would you go if not to God when the very things that you have craved and desired end up betraying you? What will you turn to? Who will you turn to when those very things that you have chased after end up betraying you in the end? Will you go to more different things that's going to end up betraying you and destroying you? Will you turn to substances to numb your pain away even though it's going to kill you? Will you turn to another job with all of its demands and punishments for not fulfilling its goals? Will you turn to another boyfriend or girlfriend and, and expect them to meet all your impossible demands, making them carry the burdens that they cannot carry, or for you to deal with a new person's baggage and frustrations? Will you turn to hours of videos and games, further disconnecting you from the reality and causing greater anxiety to rise when you step into the real world? Will you turn to improving your looks with the burden of constantly masking yourselves with products to meet a standard of beauty that is impossible to meet, even for those who stand as the standard of beauty. How have these things that you have chased after to find significance and worth and salvation fair for you? If you trust in these things for your salvation and your worth and not in your God, you will be betrayed. Such things will betray you. They will demand of you and suck the life out of you. You will believe in anything, including the promises of these things, only to be disappointed and ashamed in the end. Sometimes God will ruin your lives in order to save you, giving you into your own desires so that you can see these things will fail and, only salvation, and salvation is found only in God. And friends, when that happens, when all of these pursuits end up betraying you and hurting you, I want to encourage you and let you know we're here. Fellow individuals who have also been betrayed and hurt by many things of this world. And as you experience such things, I hope that you will let us weep with you and that we can turn to God together, receiving the sign of Emmanuel, not in judgment, but in hope. Which brings us to the next point of the sermon. The sign of Emmanuel was a sign of judgment to Ahaz, but ultimately it's a, it's a sign of hope for Judah. There will be crushing blows by the Assyrians. Not everyone was like Ahaz. I'm sure there were very faithful people in Jerusalem and Judea who are suffering the consequences of the Assyrian Empire. 
And, and the text tells us that there, it, it, it's like a hand reaching all the way to the neck to crush every part of the body. But the head will be spared. Jerusalem will be spared. And as long as Jerusalem's spared, there's a chance and opportunity for the entire nation to be restored. Assyrians will invade. They will, as we see in the history of Israel, they will take over much of the land. Uh, Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, in, in his 14th year as a king, uh, the new king of Assyria decides to turn around and attack Judah, and they will take all the fortified cities of Judah, leaving just Jerusalem as last stand. And because God is with his people, because God is with us, Emmanuel, Assyria will eventually fall without having conquered Judah, and and Assyria, in turn, becomes conquered by the Babylonian Empire and become completely demolished. So Isaiah speaks a poetic word to the nations in verses 9 to 10. Right, The entire section that Tim read for us in the beginning were words of judgment. Assyrians are going to come. The very solution that you had will end up destroying you and afflicting you. But yet, in the end, because God is with us, these are the words that the prophet speaks to the people, the, the nations that are out there. He says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. You can plot all you want to try to destroy God's people to demolish, to divide, to create fear and chaos. You can reach your hand to destroy every part of the body, but you will not destroy the head. And as a result, the entire nation in the end will be restored. And when the Assyrians attack, Hezekiah the king turns to Isaiah the prophet for help, and they pray to God, and God responds with these words to Hezekiah, For I, the Lord, I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. When God is against you, who can save you? If God is against you, what person, being, money, wealth, influence can rescue you from his hand of wrath? Only God can do that. Only God can save you from his wrath. Because there's no one greater than him. And he is the one that needs to forgive you. But when God is for you, who can be against you? No one. As the Bible tells us, not even tribulation, not even distress, not even persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or even the sword is greater than God. And of course, such things we experience as Christians, tribulation, distress, persecution, whatever these things may be, and they're like the hands of the Assyrians reaching to our necks but it will never touch the head. And Christ being the head of the church, though we experience many different suffering and, and downfall of, because of the consequences of our sinfulness and the sinfulness of this world, there's always an opportunity for redemption and reconciliation because Christ is the head who will remain forever. God, if God is for you, who can be against you? No one. And so in all these things that we experience, the Bible tells us you are more than conquerors over such things. Not because you are strong, not because you are smart, not because you are mighty, but because God is with you in love. One day, uh, I went out for an errand, 
I told my daughter, hey, you know, Appa's going to Costco. And I, I left her in the living room with my wife's knowledge. She was upstairs in, uh, in our room working. And I told my daughter, hey, I'm leaving. And she said, okay, bye, Appa. Moments later, as I'm, on the, I'm in a car driving to Costco, my wife Daphne calls me telling that our three-year-old was looking for me. She even went outside of the house looking for me because she thought she was alone. Now, I have never met a more independent three-year-old than my daughter. She's capable of so many things already. It's funny raising a child because they're completely dependent as an infant. And you teach them to be independent. you got to learn to do things on your own. And then now I'm at this point with my daughter where she needs to learn how to be interdependent. you got to start relying on people because she is arrogantly independent with so many things. No, let me do it. I can do it by myself. No, you can't. That's who she is. She is such an independent girl, but the lack of my presence, just not being there, made her feel unsafe and abandoned. The reality is, I can't always be there for my children. As much as I want to be, I, I, always can't, I can't always be there for them because I can't always be everywhere. And I'm a finite creature that one day will die if the Lord Jesus does not return before then. But the hope that I have as a believer, as a hope that I have of this God of love, is that he will be present with them and that he is present with them at all times. God will always be there even though I cannot. And so when I pray for our children during their bedtime, one of the things that I, I, I try to do as often as possible when I, when I pray with them and for them is I, I pray a word of thanksgiving that he is present with them even as they sleep because God does not sleep nor slumber. And especially as a parent, I need to be reminded of that over and over again. That while I can't always be there with them, we have the creator of the universe present with love for all of his covenant children. As we examine the world we live in right now, I mean, what a time we are living in. Many of the things that we have experienced in our lifetime will be in textbooks for future students. And today we're hearing reports of wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus said we would. We had a radical terrorist group, the Taliban, occupying an entire nation of Afghanistan. We have a superpower nation of Russia in the verge of invading another country, possibly starting World War III. We are technically in a, we're still technically in a pandemic. The narrative today is more divisive than unifying. And the Buffalo Bills with their number one defense needed to stop a team for only 13 seconds but couldn't and lost the playoff game. It just doesn't make sense of the world that we're living in today. That last point was a joke to bring some levity to the dark times that I made you recall. But regardless of the time that we're living in, you and I, as followers of Christ, we can still live in hope. Regardless of the disasters that we hear on the news every single day, there is still hope. It is because we know that God is with us, that he has not abandoned us, that he has not abandoned this creation that he has made. Without lifting a finger, Judah won against Assyria. And history proves that though evil rises, they always fall as they're exposed by the light of the gospel, which is the sword of the spirit wielded by the church. 
So friends, dear Christians, hope in the Lord. Rejoice with hope. Weep with hope. And proclaim with hope. Because sin will not have the last word. Evil will not have the final say. Nor is destruction and judgment our final end. That even in judgment, it is onto salvation, onto our salvation. Because God is with us. Lastly, the reason why you and I can be so certain that God is with us is because God came to us. That the sign of Emmanuel, there's the sign of Emmanuel in judgment, in hope, and also the sign of Emmanuel in the flesh. Now, we didn't read this portion in our, in our passage, but Isaiah later on prophesied that a new king's going to rise when the entire nation of Israel ha- has been chopped down by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. This new king will, will come out of the, the, the root of, of David, and he will reign forever, freeing God's people from all oppression. This king will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the Christmas story of Matthew tells us the identity of this person who is Emmanuel. As Joseph told, or, or as God told Joseph, your fiance, your, your betrothed, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, some of you may have heard through some criticisms and scholarly work that um, the, the, the word virgin in the Old Testament just simply means a young woman who's betrothed, a young uh, maiden who's about to get married. And so it's not really about this miraculous birth of a, of a virgin giving birth to a boy. It's just talking about a young woman giving birth. But, but the thing is, Isaiah uses the word there that is so unique, and I think it's only used twice in the entire prophecy of Isaiah, Um, When when he could have used any other word, there are other words that he could have used to simply say it is a young woman who's betrothed. But he uses a very specific and rare word in Hebrew that the Greek translation of the Hebrew takes that word and, and has to translate it as virgin. And we see why that happened throughout history through as the gospel's unfolding. That God is saying this immaculate conception of Mary by the Holy Spirit and this virgin birth will be a proof to you that God is truly with us. You, need a, you, need, you don't need any other greater signs than to realize that there was a virgin birth. And this man, Jesus, who is born out of a virgin is a proof to you that God is truly with his people. How do we know that God is truly with us? Not just by the signs that we see around us of, of history and 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 signs of our lives being transformed, but we can be certain that God is truly with us because God came to us in the flesh, in history, in Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a righteous life as testified by many who saw him and walked with him. Jesus, who was, who is the, the second person in the train, the Son of God, he came down subjecting himself to the harsh realities of this fallen world, bearing all sorts of pain and suffering who then died on the Roman cross, which in the Bible gives us detailed information on the location on where he was crucified, how he was crucified, and even proof that he really died on the cross, only to rise again three days later, appearing to more than 500 people at one time, 
walking, teaching, eating with people for a span of 40 days, and in the presence of many witnesses, taken up into heaven on a cloud. If all of this happened in history, if Jesus really did live such a life, was born in such fashion, lived such a life, died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven in history, it doesn't matter what you believe because it cannot change what happened. It doesn't matter how you perceive it or deny it or accept it. You cannot change the events that happened in history. And because these are the events that happened in history, you must respond to it. You can't undo history, but you have to respond to history. And as Christians, our response to Jesus' virgin birth, the righteous holy life, the, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection and ascension, we respond to those events with jo- love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Our response to this event of Jesus, it is an event of forgiveness and hope. The event of Jesus, our response to it, it is of gratitude and striving to maintain the unity as a church. Why strive and live in such a way that the Bible prescribes us to live? Because we firmly believe that God is with us. That this is a good life to live because God is with us. And we want these things to come out from us. His incarnation, God taking on flesh, is proof that he is with us. And that having fellowship with the creator of the entire universe is possible. It's a reality and not a fantasy. Because Jesus came through the virgin birth. God continues to give us signs of his presence today. As Jesus said, uh, there will be recognize these signs. There will be wars and rumors of wars, famines and persecution. And so there are many signs of Jesus' return. But all of these signs will mean nothing unless he first came in the flesh. And so in the face of turmoil, in the face of injustice, in the face of suffering, we can place our hope in the king who's going to return. That in the outcry of pain and injustice that we may see in this world, we can still not take it upon ourselves to to, to avenge, but we can trust in the great white throne of judgment. That one day God will make all things right. And And for all those who trusted in him, patiently bearing in their suffering will be vindicated. Because God is with us. Next week, we are going to recite the Apostles' Creed, and and, and this line of the creed gives us hope. He will come to judge the living and the dead, that our Lord and Savior will return, and he will make all things new. So dear friends, in closing, I simply want to ask you, how will you respond to the sign of Emmanuel? Will you deny it? And find yourselves longing after the foolish things of this world only to be betrayed by them? Or will you receive the sign of Emmanuel and surrender and find in Jesus freedom from oppression and hope in this life for the life that is to come when he returns? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, We thank you that as believers, we can speak with much certainty that you are a God who is with us. For you have sent your son 
into this sin-filled, miserable world to live a life in perfect holiness and righteousness and bearing the persecution and the pain and even dying on the cross so that those who would profess and believe in you may be saved. And help us now as believers in Christ that we would have absolute security and hope that no matter what is happening in this world, though it causes us to weep, that we may do so with hope. We thank you, Lord, for this message that we can proclaim to others in hopes that they too will respond rightly to the sign of Emmanuel. So bless us now, Lord, as we continue our worship and sing the songs as a response to the grace that we have received. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.